you know, I'm not pushing boundaries like I used to. Or if you go to a place like China, uh, it's a rule among missionaries not to use certain words. So uh, you sh- don't say the word Christian, don't say the word church, don't even use the word missionary. Uh, and that's because the government will of- often wire your apartment, um, especially if you're foreign, uh, your apartment, house, uh, even your phone, you know, listening on your phone conversations and things. And so if you find out, they find out you're a missionary, they'll kick you out of the country or send you to prison or, you know, what, whatever. And so these are rules. Uh, when I was in China, now like 10 years ago, these are rules I didn't try to break because, you know, I actually wanted to respect the missionaries. But I really wanted to show President Xi Jinping, you know, what a miracle. I'm American. I want to show you what freedom's about, Xi. Right? But but one thing I'm learning about relationships, especially as I get older, is that they are best when they are in relationship. If I were to just give Willa a bunch of rules and I were distant or cold or harsh, the rules would end up doing more harm than good for her. But if I give her rules that are given in the context of love and grace and forgiveness and compassion then those rules will make her flourish. China's rules are restrictive and life-draining. A home's rules need to be free and life-giving. As we enter Genesis chapter 2, we are entering like a different standpoint of creation. So what Hebrew writers like to do is they like to take a topic, write about it, leave it off, and it at some point later, it could be immediately or even a little while later, take that topic up again and write about it from a different different perspective. Uh, some um, scholars like to say it's like the left and right speakers of your surround sound or whatever, you know, because if you just have the left speaker, sounds you get one side, and on the right speaker, you get another perspective. But when you get both, you get this full surround sound picture. And so that's what the writers of the Old Testament do to give us this full picture of what they're trying to say. And and specifically what the writer in chapter 2, we believe it's Moses, but what he's doing in chapter 2 is he's taking what we saw in chapter 1, right? God makes man and woman in the divine image, and he's zooming in on that. Chapter 2 is his taking up the right speaker of the divine image to give us this full picture. And here's what he's trying to convey in chapter 2. That the divine image creates a relationship. By definition, being made in the divine image creates relationship between creature and creator. No other creature is made in the divine image. Angels are not made in the divine image. Which means no other creature is in a relationship like we are with God. Not even angels. But, here's the point I really want to stress, is that this relationship happens in covenant. Happens in covenant. So what do rules have to do with this chapter? What do rules have to do with being made in the divine image and with covenant relationship? Because we have the first rule in Scripture right here in chapter 2. The first command. Probably the the 
most widely known command in even the world, right? Do not eat of the tree. And where does this rule happen? In relationship. In covenant. The context of, of love and grace and compassion. In other words, the command comes in the context of Creator God entering into covenant with His image-bearing creatures. And in this chapter, we learn what it means to be in covenant with our Creator. So let's find out what that means. Let's read Genesis chapter 2 together, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the ground, and a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord, gave, Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Kivala, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First we see covenant in dominion. What I want you to notice at the outset of this passage is the heading, right? It says these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. It's actually a really important phrase in Genesis, like the generations of, uh, and it acts as a pointer to what the next section is going to be about. Uh, so later on in Genesis, we'll read these are the generations of Adam, uh, and then these are the generations of Noah, and these are the generations of Shem, and, and so on. Right? The point is to show that the ever-narrowing focus of history on God's people. But here the point now is to show that the subsequent history 
of the created order. What happens now that the heavens and the earth are made? And the first thing we see in verses 5 to 6 is a scene from a maternity ward. Because creation is pregnant with life. It's ripe with abundance. It's ready to flourish, right? When he's writing, no bush of the field, no small plant yet sprung up. It's it's pregnant with, with life and it's ready. But there is one thing that needs to happen first. According to God's design, no flourishing was going to happen apart from human life. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. We're seeing right at the outset of these verses what it means to have dominion. To to make life flourish on the earth by by tending it and and keeping it. Working the ground. Uh, There's a reason, right, that, that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon. And there's a reason that it's one of them is because not only was it beautiful, but it's a symbol of flourishing and also a symbol of control over nature. So, so the kingdom of Babylon wants to show not only how powerful they are, but how flourishing they are by planting these extravagant gardens. I mean, if you've ever been to Versailles, King Louis made extravagant gardens to show how how much he flourished and how powerful he was. Dominion! Shows of dominion. But these verses don't just like show man's dominion over creation, but that dominion happens in covenant. This is really important. How? God puts Adam in a garden. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is this picture of complete peace between man and God and creation. It's, it's what the, the Jews refer to as shalom, right? We, we know that shalom usually translates to peace, but it means like this actual complete harmony of, of all things in life between man and God and creation. That's what Eden symbolizes. But it's also much more than that because the garden is also a sanctuary. It's a, a temple. And we see this in several ways. And I, I want to point these out to you. The first is what we see is the presence of the tree of life in the middle of the garden. There in verse 9. Later, the Israelites will also have a candle in the middle of their tabernacle, in the middle of the temple, that looks like a what? A tree. The menorah candle is supposed to look like this tree, the purpose being that this is where fullness of life happens. Second, there is a river that originates within the Garden of Eden to to then that flows out that waters the whole world. It is a river of life. Right? Language later in the Old Testament describes what? A river flowing out of God's temple to the rest of the whole world in the New Jerusalem. Right, the, This river of life being where this is where God resides and life emanates from His presence here. So we not only have this river that flows out, but third, this river flows down. It, it flows down and divides, doesn't it? 
which means that Eden is on top of a mountain. Temples in the ancient Near East were situated where? On mountains. Because that is where heaven meets earth. Moses meets God where? Where is Sinai? On a mountain. Jerusalem is situated where? On a mountain. The mountain was was symbolic for where God dwells, where He meets with humans. And we see that later in chapter 3 that God is walking among His people in this garden. So so, so not only is is Eden this, this mountaintop sanctuary temple, but fourth, the land that these rivers branch out to and water are, are described in what? Their abundance in, in terms of their precious gems. And these gems that are listed are exactly what the priests will wear later in the Old Testament to minister before God in the tabernacle and temple. Fifth, right? God places Adam in the garden, look at verse 15, to work it and to keep it. This, these words aren't just generic words because they're used only in one other place in the Old Testament together. And where they occur together describe the duties of priests and Levites to keep the tabernacle and the temple. And lastly, God's covenant name is used in this chapter. Yahweh God. Or as our translations write, the Lord God. Yahweh is God's chosen personal name only for those in covenant relationship with Him. So all of this is to show that the Garden of Eden is a temple and a sanctuary and Adam's task is to serve God as a gardener. A gardener priest in covenant relationship with this God. What this means is that the dominion we were created to exercise can only rightly happen when we are in a right relationship with God. William Dumbrell, who's a scholar, he wrote of this, that man was to control his world not primarily by immersing himself in the tasks of ordering it, but by recognizing there was a system of priorities by which all of life was to be regulated. If he were rightly related to his creator, then he would rightly respond to creation. In a right relationship with your creator, you become a priest to show the world how this God reacts to and treats his creation. Not with cruelty. Not with carelessness. Not with disdain. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. No, we we treat it with with tenderness and and care and mercy and, and compassion. That's how God relates to His world. And if we are rightly relating to our Creator, that's how we will exercise our dominion as well. So there's, there's covenant in our dominion. And secondly, we see covenant in command. So God places Adam in this garden, all right, this place of life and, and abundance, and gives this command in verse 16. You may surely eat 
of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This rule comes within relationship. Adam already has abundance. He has purpose. He has every means of enjoying what God has made for him. He has the enjoyment and pleasure of his creator. He's in a right relationship with God. This is extremely important because the rule means life. So often we, we think of rules as something that's like taking away from, from us or, or rules are something that deprive us. It's, it's astonishing to me how much Willa will push her boundaries. Like, I'm almost afraid to tell her not to do something because that means she is going to do that thing I tell her not to do. Her nature is like all of ours because we think that if there's a rule, we're being deprived of something. She's deprived of McDonald's often. But what she doesn't know is too much McDonald's is going to kill her. But rules are actually the, the deepest means of human joy. In, in marriage, the, the rules, I call them rules, but the rules of faithfulness and loyalty and trust are there because we flourish the most within those boundaries. You know, today so many think that marriage is, is like restrictive and oppress, oppressive when it's actually the opposite. When you, when you function properly within those bounds. So the point I'm trying to stress is that Adam was meant to explore how much life there was to be found within God. But to go outside his rule is death. I've heard the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil described this way, that, that we would know good with no power to do it, and we would know evil with no power to resist it. Think about it. Adam had 10,000 trees to choose from in contrast to one. The, the meaning of, of that tree is, is found in that contrast. Because later... Right, And when we read in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy and Exodus and God's laws, he says, right, I punish the sins to the third and the fourth generation, but I keep my covenant love to a thousand generations. The point is the contrast that God is not willing to judge just three or four generations, but he desires to keep that covenant of love to a thousand generations and more. And that's the point of this contrast here. Will Adam choose to see God's abundant goodness in the 10,000? Or will he choose to believe God is stingy just because of the one? It's at this point I want to talk about something that Baptists have historically believed uh, called the covenant of works. I don't know, you may have heard of it. In other words... Uh, theologians in history have seen in this command right here, verse 16, the idea that the only place where humans could have maintained a relationship with God by works was right here. If Adam obeyed, he and all humanity would uh, flourish with eternal life. If 
he disobeys, um, all the world will be plunged into sin. But I, I, I don't know in, in my studies if, if I would find that entirely accurate because Adam was already in a right relationship with God. He, he didn't have to work to make this relationship right. It was already right. No, I, I don't think this is a covenant of works as much as it is a covenant with creation. And Adam is operating as the representative head of humanity. In other words, what I'm trying to stress here is that this covenant that God is making with Adam is not so much about Adam's works as it is Adam operating as this representative head, this unique role. And the rest of the storyline of Scripture centers on one fundamental question. Is it the same for Adam and it's the same for every human in Scripture and beyond? Will you choose death or will you choose life? Where is death and where is life and will you choose death or will you choose life? Moses, it's not an accident then that Moses, in giving the commands to the Israelites, says later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Jesus would later come on the scene in John 10 and say, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God's commands are not meant to be restrictive, but life-giving. They are given for our freedom. They're given for our joy, for our good. Don't think that you can find joy apart from God and His commands. You might find some pleasure. You might find some happiness for a while. But in the end, it will always lead to misery. Always. But obedience will always lead to joy. Always. We see covenant and dominion. We see covenant and command. Lastly, we see covenant and partnership. Covenant and partnership. I actually want to see hands. I never asked for hands. But I want to see hands. Who likes traveling? Traveling. Uh, yeah, I know you go South Padre traveling. Yes, yes, good. I love traveling. Traveling is awesome. Uh, like, there's really not like a downside to traveling. Even going to the airport and flying is so fun to me, alright? It's, it's just cause I'm, I'm up in the air and I know that I'm going somewhere, I guess. That's until I have to sleep. I can't sleep on an airplane. But anyway, the hardest part about traveling for me has always been the food. Developed countries have, you know, better but it's especially hard if I'm going to a developing country, you know, maybe on a short-term mission trip. Because there's nothing like a good old American breakfast, right? Eggs and bacon, biscuits and gravy. Am I like right? Like I want to fill myself up. That's at C- Cracker Barrel. I like the Country Boy breakfast. You know, the one where the description tells you to loosen up your belts because you know you're in for a big meal. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, everybody knows the Country Boy breakfast. I like I like that kind of breakfast. 
no, no, just one kind of meat. Give me all the meats, you know, with my eggs and my pancakes, right? Give me all of it. Among all the good that traveling does, that's the one part that is most often just not good for me. Among all the good of God's creation, there was one thing and only one that was not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. Every day of creation, God saw that it was good. He creates lights. He saw that it was good. He creates planets and stars. He saw that it was good. He creates plants and birds and fish. saw that it was good until he saw that man was alone. And it's not good. And, and I want to just pause and ask you, ask you this question. Isn't it something that the one thing Adam lacks, God supplies for him? There's a lesson there for sin and temptation. But, but, all, but this happens, right? God, this um, notice or whatever comes when God brings to Adam all these animals and Adam names them, right? And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This, this is Adam exercising dominion, right? To, to name something shows you have control over it or, or dominion over it. But then we read in verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. The word helper is not a demeaning word, right? I think sometimes our minds of helper goes to like the movie The Help or something like that, you know, the, the like maids or, or servants or something like that. But this word helper is actually most often in the Old Testament used of God himself. And it means to supply what is lacking, to do what the man himself alone cannot do. So, Alan Ross comments on this verse, the man was made aware that he by himself was incomplete, so that when God prepared the woman and presented her to him, he was overjoyed. Adam sings when he sees the woman for the first time. Husbands, there's a great Valentine's Day idea for you. And when he calls her woman, right, she shall be called woman, this naming is, is not like the naming of the animals because just like in English, right, this Hebrew word is, is a derivative of man, right? Woman being derivative of man, and the same in Hebrew. In other words, it's a naming that doesn't create mastery, it's a naming that creates equality. Stephen Dempster wrote, the man and the woman are referential creatures existing in and for relationship to God, to each other, and to the ground. And if our relationship with God happens fundamentally through covenant, then it makes sense that the most fundamental human relationship happens through covenant also. Marriage. That's, that's exactly what the meaning is in verse 23. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's describing not just what happens when two people marry. marry. It's, it's describing the covenant of marriage. And I, I want to say that the reason marriage is fundamental is because in the marriage relationship, there is a microcosm of how we relate to the rest of humanity. 
Humans were created for relationship. First with their Creator and second with one another. This doesn't mean we all relate the same way. There are extroverts and there are introverts. And there are people who replenish by spending time alone. I'm one of those people. I I, I like my solitude, my alone time. But it still means that there is no such thing as human flourishing without community. Without someone. And how we treat other humans is an indication of how we see God because in other humans is the image of God. If if we despise or dismiss or treat His image poorly, what makes us think we are rightly relating to God? Or conversely, if we are writing, relating rightly to our Creator, then we will relate rightly to our fellow image bearers. Guys, this is precisely why we want to condemn racism. Why we want to uh, treat the homeless and the drug addicted with compassion, and why we care for the orphan and widow. Because our covenant relationship with God creates an obligation toward our fellow creatures. This is, this is exactly what I mean by covenant in partnership. Because it, it, it starts with marriage, but it extends beyond marriage. This is why the first question that Cain asks sarcastically is, am I my brother's keeper? He has rejected his covenant relationship with God and therefore sees his relationship with other humans as nothing. But in covenant relationship with God, we have an obligation toward his fellow image bearers. All of this is to say that we were created for relationship. A right relationship with creation. A right relationship with one another. And a right relationship with God. In this chapter, it's tied more to chapter 3 than it is to chapter 1. It, it, it is directly related to chapter 1, but it really sets us up for chapter 3. When, as we'll see in the coming weeks, Adam and Eve disobey that one command. And the first relationship that's disrupted is between creature and creator. The second that's disrupted is the relationship between man and wife and and human between human. And also, the relationship between human and creation. What this means is that Adam, as the representative head of humanity, plunges all of us in this room and in history into sin and death and chaos. We were on that boat and we went down with him. This means that you are in Adam. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do to make that right. We're in Adam, which means we choose death over and over and over again. We need someone who can come and repair that divine image that was lost. Someone who can be the true divine image. 
No, right relationship does not happen through Adam. Right relationship happens through Jesus. Jesus came and restored what Adam lost. Jesus came and became the true image of God. And and now life is not found just in obeying rules, but it's found in Jesus. In His obedience on your behalf. In Adam, you disobeyed. But in Christ, His obedience is perfect for you. And so, so in Christ, we're free now to obey. It's not the other way around. Don't, don't mix it. We don't obey to get free. We're free to now obey. And as Psalm 119 says, to now run in God's commands. Because that's where we're free. Death came through fruit on a tree. Life now comes through Christ on a tree. That is what we proclaim. That we are all in this room in Adam. All of us in this room choose death and sin. And that the only way that we can be restored to this right relationship that God created us for is in Christ. And, and, and Christ, just like the garden, is offered freely. Eat all of the fruit of Christ. Feast upon what He has done, upon who He is. And you have life, you have it abundantly. And it's, it's free, without price. And you don't come because you're righteous, you come because you're an Adam. You come because you're a sinner. Whereas creation started in a right place with God and was plunged into darkness, the new creation is the opposite. It starts in darkness. And it starts in sin. And we can go. We can go in Christ. But you must repent of your sin and trust in Him. Receive Him. And He in all that He is, in all that God is, in a perfect, pure relationship with God will be yours. Today. Let's respond to God and His Word. Father God, how much does it take to get it through our heads and our hearts that You want relationship with us? That You do not look on us with disgust. You do not look on us with contempt or carelessness. But Lord, You love us with divine affection. And Lord, even today, You didn't stop supplying for us abundantly in the garden. You still supply abundantly for us. And yet, we still choose sin and we still choose death. We choose death and condemnation for ourselves. But Lord, You are a God of relentless life. And You give us life in Christ. Free, full, abundant life. That we would finally and fully relate to You and to one another and to Your creation rightly. That happens in Christ. 
the surpassing, unsearchable riches of all that you have done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. We can be free from Adam and free in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.